Blog Talk Radio. Don't hold nothing back. This is it. Fight! Let's go! Championship football. Championship football. Try to show these boys how we really get down, man. 16 weeks. Let's go! Thousands of hits, catches, tackles, kicks, passes, and blocks. A lifetime's worth of blood and sweat. All poured into a 60-minute, bone-crushing, adrenaline-fueled battle of bodies. Welcome to Go for the Two. Go for the Two. With Yahoo Sports Radio college football analyst Joe Lisi. And former Georgia Bulldogs wide receiver Corey Allen. Corey Allen. Right. Let's rock and roll. Yeah. Huddle up. Here's Joe and Corey. Great to be back for show number three. We're still about five and a half months away from the start of the college football season, but this is when the dirty work is done. This is what it's all about. We have a great show in store for you today. I want to welcome in my co-host. He's on a long hiatus, but he's back in business today. I want to welcome in former Georgia Bulldog wide receiver, Corey Allen. Corey, how are you today, my friend? I'll tell you what, Joe. Couldn't be better. Great time to be a Bulldog. Just glad that the 2016 football season is right in front of us. We've got a few months ahead, but we've got some games and some matchups some teams really starting to take shape that we can definitely take a look at. So uh, a, a bright time right now. Everyone has a chance to win it all. Everyone's trying to position their team to stand alone and be at the top of this when it's all said and done. So I'm excited. I think my team is in a strong position when I talk about those Georgia Bulldogs. But across this country, we've got a lot that's unraveling, and I, I'm excited about all of it. It should be a very interesting season, to say the least. I mean, week number one is as good as it gets in college football. There's some really marquee matchups that I started to break down over the first two shows. We're going to get, we'll touch on a few of them again today, get your take on them. I do want to mention a word out for our sponsor. We do have a sponsor. It's a great company called SickShades.com. That's SickShades.com by Eddie Bauer. You know summer's right around the uh, summer Corey, and, and people wear sunglasses. These are the best sunglasses that I've seen. That's sick, S-I-K-K, shades.com. And if you enter promo code, go for the two. They get $20 off. Eddie Bauer okay. Jr. makes them. I mean, all different types of uh, shapes, sizes. I mean, everything. If you're a man, woman, kid, they have what you need for sunglasses. Go to sickshades.com. I know you were out yeah, you like that, right? I know you were out at, at Georgia practice, and you you spoke to your former teammate Kirby Smart, now taking the reins over for the Bulldogs in the 2016 season. A lot of optimism. Head coach Mark Rick does move on now. Former head coach Mark Rick moves on to the University of Miami, where he has some rebuilding to do. That, but the one thing when I look at Georgia overall that lacked last year, and we touched on it in big games, was that intensity level. And that's the one thing, I mean, outside of the play on the field, I felt that Georgia didn't have that same intensity uh, that, that, that even that they had in 2014, especially on the defensive side of the ball, when Jeremy Pruitt made his first uh, year there as defensive coordinator, especially in that loss to Alabama. I just felt like they were hitting the mouth and didn't respond from an intensity level. And how much of that, and I, I want to get your take, how much of that do you feel left with the departure of Todd Gurley? Do you feel like that had any type of impact on the team last year, meaning it was a relatively young team without that team leader? 
I mean, I think anytime you you lose that type of leadership, when you consider, you know, the entirety of the senior class and Todd Gurley being a junior when he left early, I mean, we also lost a great quarterback. We lost some great linemen and a couple of guys on defense. So that team had a lot that it was faced with going into 2015, and the leadership was still in question. The only guys we felt we could probably count on when you look at that offense would probably be Malcolm Mitchell at that wide receiver spot. We had a, a lot of veteran offensive linemen, so we did expect a lot out of that unit, and we had some good young tailbacks that we wanted to see carry the ball. I think the injury bug hit us early. I think inconsistency did show up, and just, and Joe, just as you mentioned, uh, we got to be tenacity. We have to have that tenacity. We have to be nasty all game long, and we didn't have that, especially late in games. That intensity was not there. We did have some lackluster performances because, uh, in most cases, we were sometimes the most talented team. I felt like when we stepped on the field, but we didn't play to that potential for 60 minutes or for the entirety of the four quarters. So I think when you consider the changes that we've gone through, when you look at the the transition from Mark Rick over to Kirby Smart and the staff that he's brought in. And just by the nature of Kirby Smart being the new head coach, I think we've definitely uh, gone in a different direction But Kirby, because Kirby's been known for intensity. Even the time he's been at Alabama, uh, he, he's the coach on the sideline engaging the players. He's the coach making sure the team morale stays up. He's the one keeping everyone focused on that sideline when you look at how Alabama uh, went about winning those national championships. And knowing him as an individual, Joe, knowing Kirby as a person, uh, having spent time with him in, in Athens, not just this past week, but uh, the four years we spent together as teammates, you know, I know he's just like that all all day long. Kirby will not change uh, because of a new location. Kirby's going to be Kirby, and I expect that same intensity. And throughout the spring, that's what he's done, Joe. He's brought that to us. So I feel like this is a great opportunity for the Bulldogs to step up and have the right leadership if we are looking for that tenacity, if we're looking to have uh, someone push us to the limit, Kirby's going to do that. So I'm I'm excited about the potential. Uh, we've got a lot to prove, but he has all the tools in front of him, and I think his uh, his personal uh, intangibles that he brings to the table, those are going to be some key metrics in how this Bulldog team takes on challenges in the fall. I agree with you, and, and I guess last year the bullseye was sort of on Georgia's back because clearly at the start of the year, preseason-wise, Georgia had the best talent in the SEC East. I mean, a lot of fans and analysts did pick Tennessee, who was a young team because of the talent on the offensive side of the ball that Butch Jones had brought there with Joshua Dobbs and Jalen Hurd. But from just returning starters, I mean, you had four or five starters come back on the offensive line, guys like Pike and Theus. You had Nick Chubb and Sony Michelle. You did have the the Virginia transfer quarterback, Grayson Lambert, come over to, to really solidify the quarterback position left by Hudson Mason. So I felt like, you know, the bullseye was on Georgia's back last year. Now, this year, you have teams like Florida that, that impressed people last year. Now, they take some hits on the offensive and defensive side of the ball, but they're going to be in the mix in the SEC East along with the Tennessee Volunteers with that offense led by Joshua Dobbs and what they were able to do last year. So I, I guess pressure-wise, Kirby Smart has a lot to work with because a lot of eyes won't be on Georgia at the start. Now, they're going to get a test week number one against a solid team in North Carolina from the ACC, 11-3 overall last year, and we'll get into that matchup. But uh, do you feel like that will benefit Georgia overall this year because a lot of teams are looking towards Tennessee and Florida? 
Well, anytime uh, the season is about to roll around, everyone has their own favorite. I think right now Georgia is going to do its best to try to lay low and, and lay in the weeds because Tennessee right now is the clear front runner when you look at anybody's predictions about the SEC East and who should be coming out and taking that trip to the Dome. So right now Georgia is uh, in a good position where they're not the, uh, the, the team with the highest expectations, but at the same time Kirby is walking in and he set the bar high. Uh, we, we really have a different level of intensity because of the, uh, the, the pace and the tone that he brings to the table. So even though we're not uh, facing Tennessee week one or Florida week one, and even though we, we as Georgia Bulldogs are not the favorite to come out of the East, we're still in a very strong position because we have a tough opponent in North Carolina. We still have a lot of questions that we need to answer before we get to that point. We've got guys that we won't have available to us, for one reason or another, we've got a quarterback situation that is very much in flux when you look at the young kid coming in from the West Coast versus the two incumbents that have been here and probably are a lot more familiar with this high level of play. So we have a lot of to answer. The defensive side of the ball is still a, a work in progress, even though I feel very strongly about the direction of both units because we haven't had a chance to obviously get on the field. We still have a lot that we've got to prove, not just to ourselves, but to you know the Bulldog Nation. So these kids are going to have opportunities to step up. And even though Georgia is not their favorite, you know, they're going to have to walk into that Carolina game like it's their Super Bowl because, you know, when you play in this conference, everything is on the line. And even though it's a non-conference opponent, you want to take everyone the same. You don't want to take them lightly. North Carolina is not going to uh, – they're not going to look at us any differently because we're not Tennessee. They want to beat an SEC team. So I'm sure Kirby's going to have the guys prepared. And that entire offseason that we're in right now – that's that's the pace that he's put us under. He's got those under a, those guys under a really heavy workload right now. So I feel like he's putting that pressure on because he understands, you know, that we need to walk into the season ready to roll from week one. I agree with you. I think that'll be the biggest change. Kirby Smart understands the landscape of the SEC. I mean, he won national championships with Nick Saban, led that dominant defense last year that was number one ranked in rush defense, only giving up 75 rushing yards per game in the Alabama Crimson Tide. The one thing I can tell you, and I'm going to throw some statistics out at you of Georgia and going up in in this matchup against North Carolina, and we'll touch on it. When you look at Georgia last year, Corey, they were 10-3 overall. Now, those 10 victories came against opponents with a combined w- record of 51-72 and 72 overall, or 4-14. Their three losses to Bama, Florida, and Tennessee, those teams had a combined record of 33-9 and nine overall. So you could say that Georgia beat up on the, the, the mediocre teams on their schedule, and when they faced stiff competition, they didn't rise to the occasion. I think that will change under Kirby Smart. How long do you expect that? I mean, because they're, Georgia fans, now that they have their guy and they have a former player, I, I don't think they're going to wait. You know, they want to see immediate results. We know the landscape of the SEC. Give me your take about that. I think that's a great question, Joe, and that's the main reason why this coaching changed when we made the decision to let go of Mark Frick. This is the main reason why it was extremely important that we make a right decision because the Georgia fans are going to be impatient. We just fired a guy who was averaging about nine and a half wins a game. And Kirby understands that. Kirby's coming from a championship tradition from where he last worked at Alabama, and that's what we want to see in Athens. So I feel like Kirby, being the intelligent guy that he is, he understands the pressure that he's under. This is the challenge that he's been looking for, and this is the challenge that he's been waiting to, you know, 
try to have success in. I feel like he knows exactly the fact that Georgia's not going to wait five years for, you know, competition in a national championship format. Kirby's ready to put the pedal to the metal, and he knows what the expectation is because this is a bar that he helped to set, even though he was at Alabama while this was being set. So I think he knows what he's up against. I think he we're realistically looking at a three- or four-year situation where we need to be not only competing in the Dome for the SEC championship, but we need to be threatening for a national championship. We should we should be in that discussion, and that's the trend that Kirby's getting he's getting us on right now. He's uh, solidifying the trenches, I think, is the main thing that he feels like we've been lacking, uh, especially coming in and he as he evaluates the talent. So he's going to do what he feels is necessary to make it stronger in the trenches on both sides of the ball. At the same time, we should have perimeter deep threat. I feel like he knows all of these small intangible things that he saw as he coached against us when he came into Athens and beat us up between the hedges as the Alabama defensive coordinator when he took on an offensive unit that was very heavy and seniors on that offensive line, and we had a high expectation for he dominated that day, and he knows how he did it. And he took this challenge on knowing what the expectation is and at the same time understanding where the team is and where we want to be. So this is a challenge that he's faced with. I don't feel like he's unaware of that. We didn't pay him regular first-year coach money. We paid him as a guy who's going to come in and help to a level so we can compete on the highest level. And I think Kirby understands that. That's why he demanded that high dollar. That's why we went through these uh, these aggressive changes to try to get him here as our head coach. So I know he understands what he's faced with, Joe. I feel like the Bulldog Nation is not going to pull punches because he's one of our own. But because uh, we have faith in how he goes about his business, because I understand the, the guy that he is deep down inside, he wants this place to win, and he wants us to win sooner than later. You know, I have a lot of faith in Kirby, so I, I'm looking forward to the track he puts us on because I understand who we brought in, not only just as a coach, but as a man. So to answer your question, long story short, we don't have all day to get this done. Uh, I feel like this is a three- or four-year window where some tangible pro- progress needs to be uh, right in front of us. That's a great point. And you mentioned Jacob Easton. I had the opportunity to meet him at the Maxwell Awards ceremony. Um, big kid. You know, he's got all the intangibles from a, a player's perspective. The one thing I can tell you when I met him, he, he, he didn't have – and he's a West Coast kid. So, you know, he's from the state of Washington. He, when I look at, like, Matt Stafford, big kid, same type of arm as Easton and the same type of mold, Matthew Stafford had a little bit of swag to him. He, you know, he was a, an outgoing kid that was a winner and, you know, took on any type of – you know, competition that came his way and, and just had that swag about him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, when I look at Easton, he's a quiet kid. And as a quarterback, I think you want to see a little bit more outspoken. You want to see, like, hey, I'm the guy that's going to take this to the next level. A lot of a lot of fans are expecting him to be the guy to lead Georgia to the national championship. I know he's coming in with a lot of fanfare, and now we have Grayson Lambert and Bryce Ramsey in the mix for a quarterback battle. But – I don't, I'm not so sure that Kirby redshirts him. I think if, if push comes to shove and he sees a lot in, in spring camp and has, sees a little bit in fall camp, Easton could be the kid going forward. 
You know what, Joe? I think you're exactly right. I'm I'm not going to hold back how I feel about Jacob Eason. Kirby invited us, Letterman, down to watch our, watch the practice and watch the team scrimmage last week. So we just had a chance to put our own eyes on this young man. And you said the same thing that everyone says when you see Jacob Eason for the first time. He's huge. He stands at about six four, six five, but it looks like it's six seven. It's well put together, and he's putting on weight every day. This is the most athletically gifted guy we've got in Athens under center right now, regardless of how uh, Bryce Ramsey moves in the pocket, regardless of how much uh, Lambert knows as far as formations and dictating the huddle. You know, the most talented guy is Jacob Eason. I feel like Kirby's going to do what he can to get uh, Jacob to the point where he's ready a lot sooner than later, but that's going to speak for itself, and that's why I'm excited about the G-Day uh, because it will give us a chance as fans to evaluate him under pressure because you're right, Joe, he's coming from uh, the West Coast, the, the the Northwest. So he's he's a kid that's not coming from Texas like Matt Stafford. Matt Stafford coming from Texas, that's a, you know, that's another football state. You know, football is like a religion here in the South and the Southwest. So Stafford made an easier transition, if you ask me, how he stepped into Southeastern Conference football, but when I look at what Jacob Eason has done, he's put himself in a great position. He's already on campus. He's making himself acclimated not only to the environment, but to the fans, and this spring game, if Kirby gets what he wants and we get over 90,000 people in that environment, he'll he'll have a chance to play in a pressure cooker, and I think he'll stand strong in it because what I saw in the scrimmage last week was that he's not afraid to make the deep throw. He's not afraid to stand in the face of pressure. He doesn't necessarily know everything he needs to know. He's a kid that should be getting ready to go to the prom right now, but he's on campus and he ma- he's making plays with uh, high-caliber college athletes. So he's a guy that will continue to develop. There is a high expectation because he came in with all the stripes, bells, and whistles that you'd want your quarterback to come in with as a five-star recruit and a guy that's been highly touted his entire time. And I don't think Kirby's going to rush the process. But I do feel like, you know, he'll make the right decision because sometimes you have to learn under fire, and this conference will definitely provide that. So I think it's a great opportunity for Jacob. Whether he steps in week one or week four, I can't really say. If you ask my personal opinion, I'd love to see him as soon as possible because sometimes it is a little bit better to learn under the gun because those things you don't forget. I agree with you, and here's my philosophy on that, and and I think that Kirby Smart has this year, okay, in terms of realistically you can't expect a new coach to come in year one, no matter how good the talent, and, and take a team to a national championship, right? I mean, it's just it, – I mean, the, the odds are very, very, very slim, even though – Coaches like Urban Meyer that have have had great success have come in and led their teams to undefeated seasons. I mean, realistically, that's you know not really going to happen. So, I feel like Kirby can roll the dice a little bit, and and, and you know you go to Jacob Easton now where he gets those growing pains out, and, and you know you're gonna you're gonna be thrown into the mix. So you're gonna have to you know learn on the go, and there's gonna be a learning curve, and there's gonna be mistakes. But if I'm a Georgia fan, I'd rather have those mistakes year one with Easton than go through the motions, try to win the national championship this year with Grayson Lambert or Bryce Ramsey, and then all of a sudden go 10-3 and and then turn to Jacob Easton in year number two because now fans aren't going to wait again. It'll be the second year. And then it's like, oh, you know, we have a new quarterback. You know, let's go let's, – statistically, let's go to this now. Yeah, I'm going to throw two statistics at you, and I'm going to give you one a one-word answer because I know you know where I'm thinking. 
Georgia, okay. 26 points per game in 2015. Okay, 26 points per game. It's their lowest total since prior to 2008. Here's another statistic. You break down the offense and defenses, uh, offensive statistics for Georgia. 192 rushing yards per game, 185 passing yards per game. Third down conversions, Corey, 31% in 2015. You don't think that's a great statistic, but in comparison to previous years, 2015, uh, 2014, Georgia converted 49% on third down. In 2013, they converted 41%. In 2012, it was 47% on third down. My answer to that, Bobo. How many people are wishing Mike Bobo was still with the Georgia Bulldogs staff? Because I really feel Brian Schottenheimer didn't understand the talent and didn't understand the personnel. And his play calling last year, on top of the bad quarterback play, was atrocious. And I want to know and speak to how many Georgia fans wishes that or wished that Mike Bobo was on the staff last year. Well, I'll tell you what, I never wanted to see Mike go until he had the right opportunity, so I was excited for him to get it, but I was not on that bandwagon of get Bobo out of here. You know, it's hard to let go of 35, 40 points a a night, but, you know, a lot of fans did get that wish. So when we had a chance to move on and Coach Rick passed the reins over to Schottenheimer, we didn't get the results we wanted. You can name whatever reason you want to name, but he was the guy at the helm of an offense that averaged a particular number number before he got there. So, you know, my question is, you know, what was different? What did change? And you're right, Joe, there had to be uh, some decisions that were in question. You know, when you look at how he put the offense together, when you look at the plays he called, when you look at the personnel he used at specific times, I mean, we all go back to the Florida game and, and putting Bryce Ramsey in such a difficult predicament, you know, under such short notice. You know, we had a lot to question as Bulldog Nation. Uh, I don't, me personally, I wasn't pleased with everything I saw. I wanted to see much more development, but at the same time, I wasn't upset when they made the change because I knew we'd get a different guy in here to call plays. So, you know, Schottenheimer did what he did. You know, the production shows, and I think the numbers that you gave us, you know, the fact that we've been, you know, the lowest in point production since 08, you know, and falling so far in third down conversion as far as the consistency of converting to first down, that, that's, that's a terrible drop. You hate to see that. You know, there are some, you know, changes that go whenever you change a coordinator but you don't want to see that big of a drop in any statistics. So, you know, definitely I feel like we're moving in a better direction. You know, the offensive coordinator situation right now, everyone seems to be on the same page. The quarterbacks are still progressing. So it's competition, and then competition brings out the best in all of our guys. So I think we're in a great position now. You know, I'd much rather look forward because looking back at Schottenheimer, I didn't see much good out of it. I agree with that, and that's why I brought it up. I always love to get former big play players' takes on their former team, and you know that. And and we had spoken about Mike Bobo's performances in recent years. I mean, as an offensive coordinator, when you when your offense is averaging forty points per game. You can't get better than that. I'm sorry. I understand in 2014, the game against South Carolina, you could have said, give the rock to Todd Gurley, and you could always look back and say certain things. I get that. But overall, from top to bottom, he understood personnel, and he put his playmakers in a position to make plays. And and that's the one thing when I look at Schottenheimer last year, he coached scared with all his NFL knowledge, with all his NFL pedigree. He coached scared. (laughs) And uh, it's incredible. I mean, I'm sorry. I I mean, I have to call guys out. You know, when there's guys going through the motions, 
I cannot stand that. I'm sorry. Guys are earning $1.2 million, $2.5 million, whatever they're earning, and they're going through the motions. You know, you've got to have that intensity as a coach, too. You've got to want to beat you. You've got to want to win every game. And, I, you know, I just don't get that as a college football fan on top of being a fan. You've played the game. You understand. You want to win. I mean, in anything, in any type of competition, if you don't want to win at some level, whether it be cards, whether it be checkers, whether it be anything, you you don't have that competitive nature. uh, You know, that's part of life, you know, and that's 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 what the game of football teaches you. So uh, it's incredible. But I want to switch gears a little bit now. I want to talk about overall. When you look at this conference overall in terms of the SEC, you look at their, their regular season performance last year, and we could say it was a mediocre performance, but when push came to shove overall, uh, and that bowl for, uh, performance, and then obviously Alabama knocking off what I thought was the best team in the country at that particular time in the Clemson Tigers, an athletic Clemson Tiger team. Yes. Do you feel like still, uh, you know, is the rest of the country gaining on – the SEC in terms of top overall, top to bottom talent, teams like Ohio State, teams like and conferences like the Big Ten. Uh, what is your take after looking at last year, and then now we turn our attention to the 2016 season? I'd love to get your thoughts as as just a fan, and more importantly, overall objective views of both conferences and, and college football as a whole. I think in regards to the SEC and how the SEC, uh, what position does the SEC hold in the college football nation, you know, it's still a strong number one. Uh, the question is, you know, does any conference threaten that position or is is ground being gained? I, I think there are some places where you can be competitive regardless of what league you're in. I think there are some schools, there are some of these blue blood institutions of college football that are going to be strong even though they have no ties to the SEC. When you look at a school like USC, when you look at a school like Ohio State, uh, Notre Dame, these schools should always be strong regardless of what league they decide to play in because they have that historic value. A school like a Michigan can always step right back up you know, and, and be competitive. But top to bottom, as far as the conferences are concerned, you know, maybe the Big 12 uh, is probably in the strongest position because they have – a wide variety of teams that have a, a great deal of success even in the postseason. So, you know, right now that's the only team that really has an opportunity to, you know, at least initiate a discussion. Everyone else has been too inconsistent. Uh, when I lean toward the SEC, I just look at, you know, obviously the champions and, the, and a lot of teams always say that's really Alabama heavy. Okay, aside from Alabama, you know, then we'll cancel out your team and then what have you done along with that, you know, and we have a lot more teams that are going to be extremely competitive, and primarily that's going to stem from recruiting. You know, it's not a secret as to why the SEC is stronger than most teams or most leagues. You know, we recruit from the from the best fields. We recruit from the guys in the south. We have a wide variety of teams to choose from. A lot of these kids play all year round, and that development with the athletes and the coaches in the area has always been an advantage because this is a primary sport in a warm-weather nation. So, you know, all those teams in the cold areas are going to struggle a little bit only because it's colder there. But, you know, that's just a built-in advantage that the SEC is going to continue to have. And I don't think the SEC at this point has turned it over. I feel like a lot of young kids understand that, especially within the line play, when you look at offensive and defensive line play, which is what differentiates the SEC 
from any other league, you know, a lot of those kids are going to play on Sunday relatively consistently. These are going to be some of your better athletes, some of your bigger athletes. So this is where that bread is buttered in the SEC. Everyone can get a skilled player here or there, and those guys can impact your team and put you in a position to win a ball game on the college level at any time. But you really have to look at what you're doing in the trenches and how strong you are on the defensive side of the ball especially because that's what dictates the outcome of the game, who's going to be strong in the fourth quarter. And that's why the SEC with strong rushing attacks and and great defensive play, that's why the SEC has been the cream of the crop because we can travel with the game that we play. We can do it whether it's hot or cold. We can play this game. You're right about that. And when I look at these bowl games, it's it's, – when I looked at the bowl games last year, it was the speed perspective that – the SEC, and not just the speed on the perimeter, not just the speed, it was the speed in the interior. You know, the defense and offensive linemen, the way they move down the the football field and, and the line of scrimmage, that's where, when you look at the matchups in the bowl games, that's where the SEC dominated. You're right, it wasn't in the interior. Now, you look at the week one matchups overall. There's going to be – teams are going to be tested week number one. I look at this Alabama-USC matchup. Now, Alabama, again, third straight year in a row with a new starting quarterback. So, you got to say, you know, <laughs> I know Nick Saban just reloads and Lane Kiffin has done a great job. But at some point, there's going to be that growing pains that's going to nip Alabama week number one of the season because you look at Alabama overall. Now, even prior to when Nick Saban got there. Alabama hasn't lost an opening opening season game since 2001 when they were on the road in the Rose Bowl and they lost to Corey Towson, Skip Hicks, and the UCLA Bruins. They wow. won 14 home opener games by an average margin of victory, 22.1 points per game. Now, they all haven't been, you know, marquee matchups like we're going to see this year, week number one against USC. But USC has an opportunity here to really kickstart their season. Not a lot of people are going to put a lot of weight into USC. They lose Cody Kessler. They lost six games last year. So this isn't the same dominant top five USC team, maybe like, and when I say dominant, preseason. I don't, I, I pick, I'm picking USC to be in the top five. But I don't think when the annals come out in late June, you know, early July, that we're going to see USC in the top five of many polls because of the talent that they lose. So this is an opportunity for Clay Helton and the Trojans to really step up and make a statement. Now, you know Alabama's not going to fear USC. The one thing that I look at USC overall, they've struggled in intensity as well. There's a team that when they were hit in the mouth by Stanford two times last year, they did not respond. So USC and the Pac-12 have a chance to make a statement week one. The other team that really has a chance to make a statement, and it's a rematch of 2014, is the Wisconsin Badgers. They played basically a home game in Lambeau Field against Les Miles and the LSU Tigers. That's an intriguing matchup for the Big Ten. LSU has a lot of offensive talent that's coming back. They do have former Wisconsin defensive coordinator Dave Aranda, who's now the new defensive coordinator at LSU. A lot of pressure on Les Miles and this LSU team to take the next step. But Paul Chris and the Wisconsin Badgers could put really a monkey wrench in that week number one of the season. I want to get your thoughts about both of those matchups. 
Well, I'll start with the first one, Joe. Just going back to that Alabama-USC matchup, that is going to be a statement game opportunity for the Trojans. Anytime you play against the defending champions, anytime you play against an SEC team on a neutral site, and you're a blue blood yourself, SC has their own history. They have a great value. This is a great opportunity. Just as you said, they've lost some talent, and they're flying a little bit under the radar but this will be a great chance for them on a neutral field to potentially catch Alabama off guard. You're right, Alabama starting the third straight new quarterback going into the season. You know, at some point there might be some slippage, but I think the great thing that Alabama has in its in its back pocket that, that Nick Saban does is he eliminates the offseason by creating these types of matchups week one. And that's, and that's going to really help to dictate how you prepare in the offseason. So, Right now, Alabama understands they've got an opponent that doesn't care about what you did in 2015. They've got a team that's staring them right down the barrel, looking to take them on and hoping to upset, you know, what is the mighty ship in the nation. So, you know, it's going to be a challenge for both units. Uh, There's going to be talent on both sides, regardless of who's new versus who's old, because kids still love to go to both institutions. These are two of the top uh, programs in the nation. So, you know, this is going to be a highly televised, highly watched game, two different coasts involved, two different conferences. Really, uh, all the chips are going to be on the line to see how uh, who helps to dictate the pace in 2016. So, you know, Alabama is really going to do what they've done all, you know, th- these last nine or 12 years. They're going to run the ball and play strong defense. The thing is, can USC find a way to convert on third down and, and stay on the field in a, as an offensive unit? And on the flip side, can they stop the rushing game to force Alabama and Lane Kiffin to be one-dimensional because that's going to be really their only advantage to potentially line up their DBs against the Alabama wide receivers because if you allow Alabama to run the ball, it can get ugly really quick. When you look at the other game, Joe, LSU and Whiskey, that's going to be a big game. The Badgers really have a lot to prove right now. They they, they had a strong season last year with a little bit of a letdown at the tail end. So I think right now Wisconsin, they're going to, they're really chopping at the bit to try to get at an SEC team. They really want to prove their worth. Uh, they had a coach to lead them and take the trip down to Arkansas. So they, they've lost some assets to this conference. They don't really feel good about us. And I think LSU is really going to take that challenge head on, taking it right in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They're just going to walk in there and just give uh, Wisconsin a, a real heavy dose of four net. And and can you stand the pain is really going to be the name of that game. That will be a great matchup, especially since it's week one because play action is going to be involved. Both of these teams are really known for the rushing attack and what they do between the tackles with the great rushing game that they usually put on the field. So, you know, the question is who's going to set themselves up for play action and who's going to really be in a position to take control of the game because I don't think either team plays uh, well from behind. So, Two great matchups, Joe, that teams really want to try to knock the SEC off, but it's going to be tough. When you look at what Alabama and and Louisiana State bring to the table, it's real football. It's going to be four quarters of hitting you in the mouth. It's going to be in between the tackles to find out who's the toughest man per man, and it's going to be a whole lot of decisions that have to get made before we can find out who's going to win that game. And and, and Alabama and LSU aren't going to be afraid, and I think Wisconsin and and USC are going to be some – formidable opponents and great games I can't wait to see. Great points all around. I mean, this preseason, and um, um, I just went through the articles to see if there's any breaking news that affects any of the teams we spoke about. Nothing as of yet, but 
I'm always interested as a former player because I have, my, and I told you my take on these spring practices. I've sat in spring practice with Coach Bowden and Akron have been up there, and I know they work on certain things that they feel they're weak in and they show certain things. But in these spring practices, you're really not going to get a gauge as an analyst or as a fan of what the team's going to look like come August, and especially in these week one matchups. I don't care how good a quarterback looks in the spring. They ha- And I know that it's basically a year-round thing, even though they're not there with the coaching staff in the summer. These kids are practicing year-round. But still, it's still a, a layoff after the time April ends to the time that fall camp opens up in August. I don't put a lot of weight in it. Unless there's a major injury, Dalvin Cook's shoulder injury, yes. That's something we have to gauge as we get closer to the season, because if he's not 100%, it's going to fall in Jock Patrick's hands, but that could affect the offensive mentality. So I agree with certain things. Texas and Gerard Hurd, he's got an injury. He's out for the rest of the spring. That's a quarterback. That's a main player, a main cog on the offense. So that's what I look at when I look at the spring type of performances. I don't put a lot of weight into it. I don't care if a guy rushes for 600 yards. Guys aren't going – I mean, they might be going 110%, but the coaches aren't showing everything. And more importantly, they're not going to give the opponent – six months to prepare for something that they show that they're going to play week number one of the season. I want to get your take on what really goes on in the spring from a player's perspective. Uh, that's a great question, Joe. The, the springtime, right after your winter workout, spring football is really just about finding out what your team looks like as far as a depth perspective. You, you, you're going to have a few returning starters, but you're really looking at, you know, the depth, who's going to be my second team guy, who's going to be the backup at this position, and who's going to step in and maybe compete for a job in the fall. But it's really a great chance to try and evaluate depth because it's right in that period where you've lost a lot of your seniors, so you're a little bit low in your numbers, and, and your incoming freshmen haven't gotten there yet. Uh, so you're, you're in that bit of a hole where you don't have all the players available to you, but you still have some guys who should know your system, some guys who need time in the weight room, some guys who need time in the classroom to make sure they're strong in both areas. So it's really a great time, again, like I said, to get guys healthy, get that depth uh, situation addressed, and really continue to develop your players and, and make sure everyone is on track because it's all about the fall. So, you know, it's hard to evaluate a team, just like you said, Joe, because uh, there's still so many transitions that are yet to be made during the summer. You know, you're going to lose guys from the spring game. You're going to gain guys that didn't participate in spring. So you're right, Joe. You're going to have – almost a completely different unit once that fall team comes into camp uh, because you get guys that may decide, hey, it's not for me to stay here and and make the transition to to leave after spring ball and they they see where they fall on the depth chart. At the same time, there are going to be some guys who may not have been eligible to participate in the spring, and now he's going to compete in the fall, and he's a great player. Along with the incoming freshman class, they start to arrive usually between the spring, the summer, and that fall camp. So you have intervals where you're going to be receiving new players that are going to be added to the mix all throughout, whether they're transfers, incoming kids, or guys who have gotten their eligibility together. You know, that's going to be something that's in flux. You know, you cannot evaluate a team completely off the spring, especially just as you said, Joe, if it's it's not a strong position. If you're at a quarterback position, you know, yes, you can really take a look at that because that's going to be your primary ball handler. He touches that ball every play and he's making key decisions. So if you've got some flux at quarterback, then, yeah, that's going to be big news, which is why it's big news at the University of Georgia. But if you uh, if you 
if you're playing spring ball at Clemson right now and you hear Deshaun Watson is not participating just to get a little rest, you know, on a on a knee or an elbow, you know, it's probably not a big deal because number one, you know, you've got the, the number one guy in the nation. You know what he brings to the table. You've seen him practice all throughout the spring. They're going to hold him out of the spring game just as a precaution. You know, that's a different animal altogether. So spring is tough to evaluate the teams, but you've got a great chance to really develop the young players and continue to evaluate the guys that are coming in to join the unit prior to the fall. Yeah, that's what I thought, and I'm glad that you really elaborated on that because, for me, that's when I look at these reports and, oh, like, you know, we're getting a gauge. You're not getting anything. I mean, I, again, I sat in on spring, spring ball. I sat in on coaches' meetings, and I understand the mindset. And, you know, if you're a good coaching staff, you're not going to show anything in the spring game that somebody can see, especially your opponent, and, and get six months to prepare. And that's the other thing that I'm going to piggyback off of is when you break down these week one matchups, it's in my opinion, you do have six months to prepare and, and the teams that maybe don't have the best talent and, and that's not a knock. And what I say is there's obviously a favorite and an underdog in the matchup. You look, you can look at the LSU Wisconsin game. LSU, in my opinion, has a, 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 an advantage in that matchup because of two factors. In my opinion, they have slightly better talent. And on top of that, they do get the former defensive coordinator, Dave Aranda, who understands the personnel for Wisconsin. <laughs> so he can, so he can pro- provide a, co- a coaching analysis of the strengths and weaknesses of each team, especially going up against the, you know, uh, the personnel. Wow. So, so the other thing that I, I bring up in terms of when I, uh, I spoke about this in the first two shows was it's going to be the teams that can break tendencies or show a different wrinkle. Meaning if you're Wisconsin and you're going to go and play straight up uh, against LSU week number one, you have to break tendency. You have to show LSU something in that first game that's going to keep them off guard, a different formation. This is when you have six months to prepare for your week one opponent. So you better, I mean, in terms of performance, you really should have the best game plan in place because it's not a week, you know, down the road where we go from week one to week two and you really can't concentrate on your week two opponent until after you get through that, that game week number one, where maybe there's a two week buy outside of that. You have six months. So coaches, if you're a good coaching staff, you should be breaking down game film. If I'm Georgia and Kirby Smart, I should be looking through North Carolina film to get a read. Okay, how many times did they pass on first down? How many times did they run on second down? I want to know that information so that we can have the game plan in place and then switch it up and sort of formulate it as the game goes on. But, I mean, that's when you really want to have all that in place week number one, right? You know what, Joe, you couldn't be more right. This is really the time where the coaches really uh, try to strut their stuff. I mean, everyone is going to dissect data down to the T. And if you don't understand the tendencies of the opponent you're facing, then you're going to get abused. And that's really that's the chess match that's going on behind the scenes, especially during week one, because it's just as you mentioned. You know, it's not a one week, I don't know who my opponent is, uh, I have to prepare for someone else type of scenario. This is a I've got six months and I've got one goal and we have to win this one game to get our day started right. So each coach is taking every opportunity to dissect the opponent. So you have to have that wrinkle because if you don't have that wrinkle, what you're saying is, is I just want to 
get in a phone booth and fight you. And not many teams can do that for four quarters, especially when you're looking at a neutral site game against Alabama, especially when you're looking at LSU coming to town and meet you in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, these are not the type of opponents because of the way they recruit. You know, this is not a a shot at USC or Wisconsin because these are going to be strong teams, but because of the way these two teams recruit, when you look at the top five every year, in that top five is LSU and Alabama, and 50% of that class is in the trenches. So you're going to be facing the premier athletes, and you don't want to pigeonhole yourself as one specific type of offense. You don't want to run the dive all game long. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get your guys hurt, and you're going to get your, your, your fans embarrassed. So you have to have some type of dynamic added. You have to have something, whether it be an onside kick in special teams, whether it be a, a four-wide formation when you're ordinarily an I an eye formation type of unit. You you have to have that wrinkle. There needs to be something unexpected because if the kids can anticipate every move you make, then it's really going to be a game they can play downhill and it's going to get ugly really fast. So that's the challenge that these coaches face throughout the offseason because they all understand, hey, every coach in the country right now is sitting down and watching film, and the guy that I'm facing, he's watching my film. He's watching everything that I did last year. Just as you mentioned, on first down, he's watching my second and long. He knows what I like to do on third and short. He knows what we want to do at the end of the game. He knows our passing schemes, whether it be three wide or four wide formations. So those things are being dissected because that's really all you have to work on between January and August. And if you're not prepared for that team you're faced with uh, in the fall, you know, it can be an ugly game, and it usually happens relatively quick. It's, It's usually one play that tips the scale and all of a sudden the game is out of control. So you got to have that wrinkle because if you're not the one with the wrinkle, usually it's happening to you. Great points all around, and I'm glad that you you, sent, you had the same sentiments as I did because I say it all the time. I mean, uh, that's what you have to do week number one to pull off the upset, and you have plenty of time to do it, so there's no excuses from a coaching perspective. You can't tell how – you can't gauge really how the kids are going to respond, freshmen, sophomores, some kids being thrown into the mix in, in new situations. You're not sure what you're going to get from a player's perspective, but from a game plan uh, perspective, that's what you should have in place week number one of the season. I want to take a look at this year's Heisman Trophy preseason. I never do this for the most part, but I've never seen, in my opinion, in recent years where there's such a loaded field of potential Heisman Trophy candidates to enter a season. I'm going to throw some names out there. I mean, and when you think about it, it's it's mind-boggling. We'll start with Clemson and Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson completed 67% of his passes in 2014, 37 passing touchdowns, 13 interceptions. He threw for 4,104 yards. He also rushed for 1,105 yards on the ground and 12 touchdowns. Teammate Wayne Gallman can be thrown in there, 1,527 yards. He averaged over five yards per carry, 13 touchdowns. Then you have Dalvin Cook. 1,693 yards. He averaged 7.3 yards per carry, 19 touchdowns. You throw in Leonard Fournette into the mix. He he was unbelievable, 22 rushing touchdowns and 1,900 yards in the 2014 season. How about Chad Kelly? I mean, the list goes on and on. Elijah Hood is another guy. I've never seen a front-loaded a field of Heisman contenders to enter the 2016 season. It's going to be really interesting to see 
which guy brings home the hardware at the end of the year? Because those guys that I just mentioned, I mean, there's a, a, a really 10, 11 guys that really can bring it home this year. You know what? There are a lot of a lot of guys that want to get this title, and I love to see how this plays itself out, Joe, because, you know, competition, again, it, it brings out the best in these kids. And, you know, just the names that you mentioned, any of these kids could end up winning the Heisman, but a lot is going to depend on the health. So, really, the health is always going to, going to be a primary factor in, you know, who's going to have the best chance, who can play the most games, who's, who's going to be healthy all season long, compete for 12 weeks straight, and put themselves in a position to have a decision made in December, and at the same time push their team to a lot of success. You know, these are always going to be some great questions that, that get answered along the way. And quarterbacks have the biggest opportunity to win this award, obviously, because they, they touch the ball every play. They have a chance to dictate where it goes and how much it's turned over versus put in the end zone. So, you know, they have a great hand in it. But I love to see that we've got a few running backs in the field that, that they get a chance to step up and, and continue to show their wares because anytime you have a special running back on the college level, you know, coaches – uh, don't shy away from giving those guys the ball. They get the carries that they want, and it's always exciting to see a kid uh, tote the mail and, and make uh, defenders pay for it. So looking at guys like Fournette and Dalvin Cook, I mean, those two you know, are two of my favorite, and, and, and those teams have high expectations of these kids coming back. So, you know, it, it can be nothing but a good thing. When you have this level of competition returning, all these kids want to do what's best for their own individual career and for their university. So they're all going to play hard. I hope they all stay healthy so we get the best show possible. And to keep the fans on the West Coast ha- uh, happy, Christian McCaffrey, I'll throw in Elijah Hood, JT Barrett for Ohio State. I mean, the list goes on and on. You could throw in Gerard Hurd and Tyrone Swoops for Texas as well. I mean, Malik Zaire, Deshaun Kaiser for Notre Dame, whoever wins that quarterback battle. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, I know McCaffrey's up there in terms of – you know, exactly. top five probably entering. But, I mean, uh, we were just looking at the week one matchup. So, I mean, it's really about a, a 20 guys that really can, depending on how they start their season, can really be in the mix for this Heisman Trophy. I mean, it's something that I really don't look at until, like, as we inch closer to the end of the season because, for me, I want to break it down. I, you know, for me, it's all about the matchups and the and the games being exactly. played in the analysis. But, but that's what I look at as as a preseason uh, poll. It's going to be very, very interesting, to say the least. I do want to bring up a couple of things about some of the some of the other teams week number one and get your thoughts about what could possibly be the deficiencies. One of those teams that plays a, a big time week one game is Auburn and Clemson. Auburn lost the last two meetings to Clemson overall. Uh, by an average margin of victory of 10.5 points per game, they got outscored 64-43 to 43 in those two matchups. But when I look at Auburn overall, it's telling on the offensive side of the ball, and I just want to get your quick thoughts about it. Rushing production for the Auburn Tigers last year, they had 196 rushing yards per game. Seems like a, big, a, a solid statistic overall. But when you put it in comparison to the last two previous years' rushing performance, it's really consistently going down under Gus Malzahn. Under Gus Malzahn in 2013, they averaged 328 rushing yards per game. That's an unbelievable statistic. In 2014, they were 255. Last year, they were 196. And in those six losses that they lost last year, 
that came to opponents with a combined record of 59 and 19 overall. As an offense, they only averaged 158 rushing yards per game in those six losses. Clearly put a lot of pressure on the offensive line, and the quarterback, Sean White and Jeremy Johnson, who combined for 11 touchdowns and 11 interceptions last year, everything was said about the quarterback situation. But not enough is being said about this rushing offense by Gus Malzahn because it's all predicated on the running game. I want to get your thoughts on what could be the problem in terms of why the offense is staggering under the offensive genius, Gus Malzahn. (laughs) The offensive genius, Gus Malzahn. Well, the problem with the offensive genius is that he's got to have a threat under center. He can't operate that system. That scheme does not operate well with a pocket passer. So he's much better served when he has a young man that can threaten the perimeter with his legs. Uh, when we saw that in Cam Newton, we saw it in the young man that transferred and, and, and left the University of Georgia and had an opportunity to play over there on the plains that we weren't pleased with. So we, we've seen this style of play, but the problem is when you, when you dictate uh, or, or, excuse me, when you try to initiate a passing attack from that offense, it really struggles. Uh, that offense usually runs well when the running game, just as you mentioned with those statistics, when the running game is supporting the entire team, then that offense is usually going to click, and he has to have he has to have a threat a threatening quarterback that's going to step in and really put that defense in a position where they don't they they can't just sit back and wait on their laurels. So that's really the primary goal is to really get a quarterback that'll threaten the offense, or excuse me, threaten the defense enough so that he can dictate the pace by using that guy in the same passing and running game. That's great points. And I said offensive genius because I, we know how Gus Malzahn is. He's high on his offense, and uh, he loves to run sideline to sideline. And, and I said it. I said it with Nick Marshall. We, I, you know I was very high on Nick Marshall. He might not have been the best quarterback, but the kid was a winner. And when Cameron Artis Payne and Nick Marshall left last year, which accounted for 75% of the offensive rushing touchdowns in 2014, I said it ahead of anybody, Auburn, look for that offense to struggle. They averaged 27 points per game last year, but they were not the same offense with Sean White or Jeremy Johnson last year. And defensively, with your former teammate Will Muschamp there, they thought they were going to make a complete 360, but they didn't do it. Now, this is a team now, Corey, that now has their third defensive coordinator in as many seasons because Will Muschamp became the head coach of South Carolina. So this team is still, in my opinion, reeling from the losses and the lack of offense and defensive talents. Give me your quick thoughts about Auburn overall for the 2016 preview. I think right now their main struggle has been just the transitions, going from uh, Nick Marshall to Jeremy, going uh, back and forth with defensive coordinators. Right now they they need some stability. Malzahn is really going to have to provide that. He needs to get a guy under center, even if it's a guy he's already got on campus, but he needs to solidify that position because it does a great job in dictating the pace of the entire unit. They put too much pressure on the defense last year because they couldn't score points and they were off the field too quickly. They did a poor job of converting on third down, and at the same time, they really didn't threaten you with that pass. They were very one-dimensional, and that really hurt that offensive scheme. So the defense was under the pressure because they had to perform and play at least 40 minutes every game uh, without having any support from the other side of the ball. And when you put that in with the fact that they've 
change coordinators again. You know, they're going through some transitions at Auburn. The problem is never going to be talent, but they do have to do a better job of organizing it and putting it together. They've got a great scheme, but that scheme relies heavily on great quarterback play, and that defense has been exposed because they've been on the field far too long because the offense has done a a poor job converting, especially on third down, and a, a really poor job in the passing attack. So right now, Auburn has an uphill battle, but really, you know, that can change in a heartbeat. Just as you mentioned, when they got Nick Marshall, you know, that was a one-year phenom. It does not take long to turn that ship around because of the way the offense is designed. And at the same time, they've got a great play caller. Uh, Malzahn is really a great play caller when you look at the offense that he runs. But if the guys on the field can't execute those plays, then he's really at a disadvantage. So uh, I think Auburn just needs to find the right kid, whether he's that quarterback today or he might be a cornerback on their own team. You know, they need to just find the right guy that's going to continue to threaten defenses so that you don't pigeonhole them. And Malzahn can call great plays from that. I agree with that. I think we should see, we shall see week number one because they're going to be tested by a very athletic offense and defense in the Clemson Tigers. And that's the one thing that Dabo Sweeney's done is that he's brought his team to an elite level in terms of knocking off teams like Ohio State. Uh, knocking off teams like LSU, knocking off twice in, in two seasons in a row in the University of Oklahoma. Uh, it, it should be very, very interesting, uh, to say the least, how that week one matchup fares for the Auburn Tigers. And I'm sorry, Oklahoma fans, throw in Baker Mayfield into the mix and uh, for the Heisman Trophy candidacy for 2016, just another guy that we, we're going to be talking about as we inch closer to the season, Corey. Uh, this is what makes college football so special because here we are about five and a half months away. We have so much to talk about in terms of uh, players, games, there's so much to break down uh, week number one because it doesn't get better than that. And then there is possibly the biggest game, the biggest game in the history of college football when Tennessee and Virginia Tech play in Bristol, Tennessee, in in the NASCAR stadium, 160,000-plus <laughs> for that game. And, and it, it'll be interesting to see – how Justin Fuente and the Virginia Tech Hokies respond on a landscape of that because uh, Tennessee will be – it's SEC country. and Expect them to have a very heavy Tennessee crowd for that matchup. That's week, week number two. I mean, that's not week number one, but what a way to, to really kickstart the, the first month of the season. I mean, 160,000-plus. Wow. Great matchup. Great matchup. That's going to be that's going to be one that I'm really looking forward to. You're right. Virginia Tech got a new head coach. This is the first time they're not playing Beamer ball in what maybe 30 years. It feels like, and at the same time, Tennessee is the forefront of the they're the cream of the crop of the East, SEC East right now. So really excited about who's going to take advantage of that spotlight. And it's right set in Volunteer Country. So a great opportunity for Tennessee to step up and, and put on a showcase uh, as they face Virginia Tech. It should be very interesting, and that's the one team. Can Justin Fuente take Virginia Tech back to to really dominance in the ACC? He's got some good play, uh, p- players in place. He's going to have defensive coordinator Bud Foster. There was uh, reports that Bud Foster and, and Justin Fuente had a, uh, a meeting, and that's what brought them together as a team. So you're always interested to see how these new head coaches respond. I mean, what – 
what he was able to do in Memphis is it was a, just a dynamic job and, and really uh, knocking off Ole Miss last year, bringing them to an undefeated 4-0 and record for like the first time since like 1961. He did an outstanding job. Uh, uh, an excellent offensive mind, the former Oklahoma quarterback, But this is what it's all about. This is why Corey and I love talking about college football. We're just touching the surface. This is show number three. We're going to continue it all the way up until college football kicks off in the month of September. I want you to stay with us all season long. You can go for – check us out at gofortheChew.com. For Corey Allen, I'm Joe Lisi. Join us next week at Go For The Chew for our sponsor, Six Shades by Eddie Bauer. Join us next next week for another great show. Have a great week, everyone. Go dogs.